0: Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. This week we have a very interesting guest with several really cool stories to let you find out more about different sports and approaches you can take to the multi-sport or consummate lifestyle that we're promoting on this podcast. We also have some very exciting news. We've moved the show notes, images, images, Molly's writings about the different episodes we do, the people we interview, to consummateathlete.com. So a standalone web address, much easier to say than some sort of backslashing from one of our websites. You'll still find updates from all our websites and our social stuff, but easy to sort of reference, let your friends know about, Um, share consummateathlete.com. You'll find all the older episodes, the first five we've done, um, and all the future ones. So today we have Josh Whitmore. Um, He is a coach with Carmichael Training Systems. He coaches cyclists. He coaches all sorts of different multi-sport athletes. Um, And Josh reached out to us and said he had a couple interesting stories that he thought would fit great with our podcast, and I don't think it disappoints. Uh, From racing um, some of the early boom day mountain biking races as an elite and a junior in the 90s. And and the sort of what we might call early retirement, which I found intriguing, is this idea of when do you stop? When do you move past racing and you know maybe pursue this more consummate athlete lifestyle? So he talks a bit about why he made that decision and when he made that decision, um, and moves on to sort of tell us about his his upbringing in a commune, which is you know a little outside of what a lot of us are used to, um, his progression towards outdoor bound and again, which fits awesome in this sort of outdoor adventure, exposure to lots of different sports, learning new sports. Um, He touches on that a bunch. Uh, He talks about North Carolina, sort of his, where he was up, uh, where he was brought up. And uh, yeah, progresses through to coaching and some ideas for coaching with flow state, being an introvert, um, you know, racing a ton, um, how, you know, how to train for different sports. We're talking about rock climbing so there is a just jam packed here lots of really good stuff and as always we anyone who's in a relationship with someone else who's active molly and i are always after that so we touch base on that he's got some really cool ideas to make it work uh when you have two people trying to exercise or race and of course molly throws me under the bus so look for that uh episode josh whitmore number six on the consummate athlete podcast
1: Hey guys, it's Molly here. I'm here with Josh Whitmore, who is this really awesome coach and sort of mountain man living in North Carolina. Today we chat about a ton of really cool stuff, including him growing up on a commune, which is a fascinating story for me. Um, before we start, I will just point out we're still sort of getting our sea legs at this podcasting thing, so my apologies for any weird audio, and uh, please let us know if there's anything that uh, you know we can improve on. So yeah, enjoy this chat with me and Josh. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about you here.
2: Sure. So,
1: okay, I have to say, like the first thing I desperately want to talk about is this growing up on a commune. Like, tell me oh, yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, that's that's a um, a lot of people are interested in that because it's it's different, right? And you know, it's it's kind of out of the ordinary. Um, so the place was in Western North Carolina here, and it was called the Eco Village, and it was. Um, I guess, an intentional community and kind of off the grid sort of place that um, was a bunch of old hippies that got together and wanted to do this thing. And uh, several of them had lived on other communes um, that maybe ones that people have heard of, like the farm or, um, you know, stuff like that. And so they they started this thing um, and it was a a strange combination of um, of kind of ancient I don't know. I need to say traditional techniques of organic gardening and farming and stuff like that. But then also we had some government grants for, um, and other kinds of grants and things for, um, you know, alternative energy production. Um, so like micro size hydroelectric energy production. And, um, this was in the early, you know, this is in the seventies. So this was like the early days of photovoltaic and, and solar stuff. So we had prototype batteries from battery companies and, you know, the kind of weird stuff like that, you know, so, we you know, like we had workhorses that pulled a cart or a plow, but then we had, you know, really fancy, you know, electric systems. So, we you know, we essentially grew our own food and produced our own electricity and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it was a commercial operation in the way that it was, uh, you know, we made money by um, selling food and animals and whatnot to, you know, to like at the farmer's market or That sort of thing, and then also people could uh, take seminars at the at the village. So they, uh, you could come there and camp, and you could do like a weekend seminar on how to start an organic gardening garden in your backyard, kind of thing, or um, attend a seminar about. Um, alternative building techniques like passive solar construction or um, alternative construction materials like straw bale houses and stuff like that. So um, that's how the place kind of made money, I guess.
1: That's so um, cool. It, it reminds me of like not quite dystopian, but like whenever you read futuristic fiction, it always has like the old stuff where you have like horses and gardening, but then all the crazy you know, futuristic stuff. Oh, for sure. It was
2: very much like that. Yeah.
1: That's so cool. Um, Um, So, I mean, that sounds like it was a pretty outdoorsy way to grow up. Is that sort of what started you on the path toward, you know, cycling and eventually mountaineering and all that stuff?
2: Yeah, I'd I'd say so. I mean, uh, you know, I'd I'd joke and say that I I grew up as a feral child and that, you know, there was a group of kids, you know, on the commune that um, that we, we just sort of roamed around and did our own thing. And, you know, certainly we had our parents, but it was also the the community's responsibility to sort of look after all of us. So, you know, we had, um, you know, everyone sort of supervised us, which meant that no one actually supervised us. So we, we just sort of did our own thing. And, you know, we had all kinds of amazing adventures. This is a big place and we had a lake and we had all this forested land. And so, you know, I don't know, we just kind of romped around all that place, um, you know, and and learned about, you know, learned from our own mistakes and had little, little micro adventures on our own, um, you know, building forts in the woods and following fox trails and I don't know, like catching turtles and just stuff like that, you know, so, um, so I, I think that, you know, I grew up kind of in the dirt. So I feel like, um, that was, that certainly lent itself to, um, feeling comfortable or feeling like home in, in the outdoors, I guess.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the organic, the organic gardening, you guys are so ahead of, you know, what's cool now, right? Like 40 <laughs> years ago and right. super on trend now. <laughs> so yeah, it, exactly. Did it shape your eating habits?
2: Um, to a certain extent, I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely, um, I mean, I'm a conscious eater. I'm not strict about anything, but um. You know, I, I, mean, I try to I try to be healthy. Um, I, I guess I, I mean, I probably have more of a connection to food than some people do, like in the way of, you know, I eat meat, but I also understand what it's, you know, what it's like to raise a cow and to be there when it's slaughtered and, you know, and like cut it apart and make the chunks into pieces that you're going to eat, you know, which is something that people don't normally make that connection. You're like, oh, like pretty pet cow, pet it, pet it, you know? Yeah.
1: And then they don't have a hamburger, and there's no <laughs>
2: right. There's not. There's no connection there. So, um, so that you know, I think that probably influences me a bit for what I what I choose to eat. You know, I mean, I, I try to eat happy, happy food. I guess what I would call it.
1: <laughs> I love that. Now, I grew up hunting, and I was I was a vegan and a vegetarian for a few years, sort of in between that and where I am now. But I definitely think you know it's super important to understand where your food came from and like what went into the making of it. And if you're still cool mm-hmm. with it, then by all means, like I still eat venison and I'm happy. Right. But I also know where it came from.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all decisions. Exactly. Um, but that, you know, that place eventually closed down. Um, and you know, it was a <laughs> sort of a, a financial disaster in the end <laughs> and, and uh, um, everyone moved away and, and, um, you know, my father and I ended up you know, just living in Brevard, North Carolina and, um, in, you know, I went, I started like into high school, like normal high school as a freshman. And, um, you know, and that's, so that, you know, I kind of like got injected into normal, normal, more normal life, I guess at that yeah. point, you know, at the age of 13 or something, but oh my, was my mind was huge,
1: was that just a huge behavioral transition for you?
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. It was definitely, um, really weird to, to come from, um, I mean, the, the, the Eco Village was, was not a religious affiliation per se, um, but it was very community oriented. So every, all the values and all the morals that I was taught growing up there were all about its impact on the community. So, um, you know, I was taught to consider the community as an equal part of every decision, you know, that I make for myself. And so, um, you know, we were so tied together in that place that the, you know, the ripple effect of your own decisions really were apparent and were very, um, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, just obvious for everyone. So that was a big part of it. So, you know, to then kind of like get thrust into, you know, more normal high school, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and I was still making these kind of decisions and, uh, you know, and people were not necessarily making those same decisions towards me, you know, I, I would be all, you know, like trying to call community meetings in the middle of classes and things because I, you know, I was disappointed in the way that, you know, that the, that so and so was treating so and so, and I wanted, you know, like we needed to talk about it and remedy this thing because the community was not going to be healthy because of that, you know. So, oh
1: my gosh. <laughs>
2: um. So I was the weird kid. Um. I was very confused why people didn't like me because I didn't have the right brand shoes on. Um,
1: yeah, you know? that must have been a totally different world all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like
2: what? <laughs> Um, but, you know, I mean, I adapted and, you know, there's a lot of popular culture stuff too that I didn't get. I mean, I certainly I was exposed to, 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 a lot of it, but, um, you know, I didn't grow up watching the Cosby show, like everyone my age, I'm 40 now. So all the, you know, everyone else my age, you know, had all these references to pop culture that I didn't really get. Um, and even to this day, like it's most of it goes over the top of my head that I, you know, I, I pretend like I understand what's going on, but you know, most of the time people say stuff and I'm like, what? Like, okay, whatever.
1: Yeah, you've Um, learned how to fake it now, though, so.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, All right, so then how how did you get into mountain biking?
2: You know, I actually had a road bike first. It okay. Um, It it started with – I, I the story with this is that uh, I rode the bus to school. So my dad worked, and I didn't. You know, so I was continuing on this kind of feral and independent child kind of thing. So so I, I was kind of responsible for myself. That I and I, I rode and so I would ride the bus to school. The bus had um, you know like the classic like nineteen year old senior on it that seniors on it that would like you know bully me and like steal my lunch money and stuff. So I decided that I hated riding the bus and it was too far to walk. So, um, I decided I was going to ride a bicycle to school and, um, it was, this was at the time when, um, this was back in, uh, you know, late eighties, early nineties. So this is when Greg Lamont was popular. And, and for some reason I'd, you know, I had very limited exposure to television, but you know, saw wide world of sports or something and saw Greg Lamont on the TV and thought that this was cool. It was like, you can like people like do this, this is a thing. And, um, we had been, we'd been in a car accident and I'd gotten a, an injury from this car accident and gotten some kind of settlement for the for the injury that I received in this car accident. My dad said I could have this money and put it in my own bank account and it was just enough money to buy a road bike. So I bought a road bike. Nice. Uh, so I had this, so I bought a road bike and started riding back and forth to school and then, um, you know, it was 10 miles each way or something. And so as a 13-year-old, I started riding 20 miles a day and so... And on one – a few months later, I guess, um, uh, on a weekend, I saw someone ride the other direction, uh, and he had on, like, bike shorts and a real bike jersey and a helmet. And so this dude was serious, right? Um, So I made a U-turn in the road and chased him down. (laughs) And uh, it was like, you know – came like riding up behind, like, you know, Hey, 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 what, what are you doing? Like, where are you going? Like, blah, 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 blah. So I latched onto him and, uh, he was a local dude. that was like a cat three racer and, um, and started riding with him a bunch and, um, and then went to a few races with him he'd take me to some races. And and, I mean, I think he was like 17 or something. So he wasn't that much older than me, but, (laughs) um, you know, but he could drive. Um, so he started taking me some races and then, um, yeah. Then my dad actually bought a mountain bike at some point. And then I, anyway, one thing led to another and I decided that I needed a mountain bike because there was good mountain biking nearby. Um, Pisgah National Forest was right there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, awesome. so So anyway, so that was kind of how I got into
1: it. Nice. It's so funny that I've actually just started doing this piece for bicycling about um, people that got into cycling while watching the tour on TV and Mm. everyone has mentioned the Greg Lamont on the wide world of sports. Oh yeah. It's so funny. And I mean, I guess I'm, I'm slightly too young to have remembered that and I'm so angry at my dad for never showing me cycling (laughs) on TV because I'm like, I could have gotten into this like 10 years earlier if I'd just seen it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a big deal, you know, especially, you know, pre-internet era and, uh, you know, the very limited amount of exposure to um, stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, and it wasn't like it was live coverage or anything, you know, it would be like a once a week, you know, I don't know. I, I just thought it was cool. Um, so, and and being sort of an introverted, independent kid, um, you know, a bicycle was my ticket to freedom. Like it was the, it was my ticket to the world. Yeah. <laughs> and, exploration and all that sort of stuff. So and I latched onto it immediately. It was like a vehicle of, you know, of, ex, you know, sort of, you know, I don't know, just, yeah, just that sort of, um, exploration and freedom, really, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we talked about you ended up giving up racing and started going toward outward bound and kind of getting into mountaineering. So what kind of brought you out of that mountain biking scene?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I went, started doing pretty well as a junior, you know, racing and then got into the, this was the time before mountain biking was being introduced into the Olympics in the in 1996 in the Atlanta games. Um, so there was some regional development money and some national development money going into the, to sort of like develop the mountain bike pool and mountain biking was really starting to boom then in the beginning of the nineties. And there was a lot of money being dumped into it and a lot of racers were coming over from the road and coming into mountain biking because they could actually make a higher salary and racing professionally in, in mountain biking world. Um, and so I started doing well as a junior and kind of got in that track and, um, started, you know, traveling a bunch to do, um, you know, the Norba national championship series races and, and all that kind of stuff and represent the United States and the world championships and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then eventually turned professional and, and raced as a full-time professional for several years. And this was in the, you know, kind of middle to late 90s. And, um, you know, I eventually discovered that this was at a time in mountain biking when um, a big switch had happened where prior to that in the early 90s or late 80s, you know, Americans were the dominant uh, athletes in the sport. And right. Um, You know, we had this big Euro invasion of um, suddenly Americans weren't able to finish higher than 30th or 40th in the World Cup kind of races. And um, this was also, unfortunately, at the time when, you know, the sport was really, you know, mired in in doping stuff, you know, not necessarily, you know, that it was uh, common for, uh, you know, the middle of the EPO era. Um, So you know, I, for me, you know, I, I eventually understood that doping was a thing that it was happening and that, um, I was a, you know, a 20 year old professional athlete and was doing not very well in the professional cycling world. And, you know, came to understand that, that the top guys were doping, yeah. you know, I, I never, you know, let it be clear that I never like saw it or I never like watched anybody dope or had any like specific firsthand knowledge of anyone doping, but you know, it's one of those things when you're immersed in it, you just know, you know, like it's kind of common knowledge kind of thing. Right. No one ever offered it to me or no one ever like, you know, suggested that I should do it. But just as pure existence for me, um, you know, I eventually decided that the the whole scene was I didn't want I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to necessarily try to compete as a clean athlete either. In the way that the the scene had just changed for me, that my image of what the sport was was different. It was kind of like you know walking into the arena um, expecting to have you know like Olympic quality you know gecko Roman wrestling or something, and then realize that it's WWF, and then you know Andre the Giant is there, right? Right. So you know it's sort of like a different shift of like, okay, this is what the scene is like. I don't like that scene. I don't want to be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, So you know, so then I I kind of went on to do other stuff. Um, and, you know, that, that was, uh, you know, looking back, you know, I think, um, it would certainly would have been hard and I I didn't have the talent, I think, um, to be a really good professional racer. Um, so, you know, in one way, this was kind of an out for me to say, like, to kind of cut my losses before I got in too deep, you know, yeah. really deep, I guess. So
1: yeah, and I mean, well, it seems it seems like you made the right decision, you know, given where you are now compared to, I mean, the life of a pro racer is really not super fantastic. Oh, right. Right? Like,
2: yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, even then, you know, I was, I mean, I had a salary even, you know, I mean, I got paid, and you know, I mean, well, the most I ever made, I got paid $1,000 a month and my expenses paid. Um, and, you know, that was enough that I didn't have to have another job. And, uh, you know, so I was... That that was like in the heyday of mountain biking when you can make a living doing that as a twenty-year-old developmental rider. This is before there was U23 category, before there was even semi pro category. It was like I went from junior to professional and straight into it. And, you know, it was like I'd go to World Cup races and, and literally like I would finish the race and they'd already be taken down like the the finish banners and the stuff, you know, and, like yeah. I have to go like knock on the door of the the timing trailer and say like, Hey I finished, can you, you know, hi, can can you um you know, that kind of stuff. So um, anyway, yeah, for sure. It was, uh, I think it was a difficult decision, but it was also, um, you know, it was the right one for me. Um, And so it worked out all right.
1: Yeah. So you ended up going to outward bound. That's a huge shift and a huge shift in the skill sets that are necessary. So you're this like probably skinny pro, I'm picturing like a little tiny skinny pro cyclist showing up and like, teach me outdoor skills.
2: So. Yeah, pretty much. You know, well, you know, during the time that I was racing as a pro and I was going to college as well. So I, I got a, um, an academic scholarship to a local, um, college and Brevard college small private school in North Carolina that had, um, like an outdoor education, experiential education program. And, um, they needed Um, local smart kids basically to be a part of the program because they were they were transitioning from a two-year junior college to a four-year school and so they had they pumped a bunch of money into scholarships to be able to um, help the first kind of generation of their four-year students through um, to be able to complete on time and you know all that kind of stuff so um but it worked out well for me because I I'd, I'd ended up kind of going to school like only in the fall semester and then would take the spring semester off. And, and then only a couple of years did I do or maybe one year I did two semesters back to back. But it was as they sort of like, you know, had these fits and starts with getting the program going. You know, it was it actually worked out OK that I, you know, they weren't quite ready for us to take these other classes. So it's like, OK, well, I'll go away and, you know, live in Arizona for the winter and train and then come, you know, come back. So so anyway, the The theme of that story was that I that I was at the same time that I was being trying to be a professional bicycle racer, I was also learning um, how to be an outdoor educator and how to in college, basically, you know, and how to how to do all these kind of other um, things. And you know, and I'd started in high school even rock climbing and kayaking and backpacking and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was kind of a natural progression you know even in college you know my first art college I thought I was going to be an engineer I thought like oh maybe maybe engineering would be cool um and then I quickly gave that up because it was hard and you know it was like desk oriented and I didn't see myself being able to do that so I was like oh what's this rock climbing class like that sounds like a cool I can get credit for rock climbing like when you're kidding me (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) And then, uh, and then I took this other class called Introduction to Outdoor Education because it was a combination of rock climbing, kayaking, and backpacking, and caving. And I was like, oh, man, that's cool. I get get credit for doing all these things in some way. And it's four credits. Oh, my God. So then partway through the semester, I was like, wait a minute. You're teaching me how to teach this stuff. Now I don't know about that. Like, I just want – now, I'm pretty psyched about doing this stuff. Now, I don't know about this teaching business. Like, I don't, don't want to, you know, whatever um, – but I, you know, I finished out the class and I was like, okay, well, I'm sort of good at that. I can do that. And um eventually so one thing led to another. And then I'd start working at summer camps and then eventually became an outdoor bound instructor. So um that's why I went into you know, after I quit racing, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna do this. This is you know I have a bachelor's degree in experiential education and all this experience. I'm gonna be a backpacking instructor and a rock climbing instructor and all that stuff. So yeah. um yeah, certainly a different skill set for sure, um, as far as uh, you know I mean our bound especially is really you know using the outdoor as a medium for teaching people how to be a good community members and how to be good you know how how to discover themselves and be confident in themselves and develop skills and uh, you know and, and that sort of thing so um you know in, in some sense you know my sense of community from the from before you know lent itself well in that environment that you know if you're on a small expedition, like an hour bound course for four weeks, you know, it's like you really have to instill those sense of community among that group to be able to accomplish the goals of the group. And, um, so that was really easy for me to make that transition.
1: Totally. And suddenly you can call community meetings again and it makes sense.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That was the king of community meetings for sure. (laughs) Stop everything. We need to talk. (laughs) This This is the classic hour bound instructor, like the, and I also went on to to be a Knowles instructor um and worked a lot for them as well, which you know, slightly different philosophy and methodology and, and uh you know, so but you know, the the classic jokes, you know, the difference between an hour bound course and a Knowles course, you know, there's sort of like, you know, how do you tell the difference? There's like two groups of 10 people in the wilderness and, you know, they're both, you know, carrying backpacks twice the size of anyone else and, you know, and they're moving really slowly or they're, you know, whatever, like how do you tell which one's the outbound course and which one's the Knowles course and like, you know, the outbound bound course is like sitting in a circle talking about doing something and the Knowles course is like doing something, you know, it's sort of the <laughs> short version of those, of those jokes. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty funny that way. That's
1: awesome. So, I mean, growing up in North Carolina, you know, I think some people think of North Carolina as just like the beach area on the coast, but you guys have a lot of mountains. So, what about mountains like draws you to them? And I mean, how does living in North Carolina influence how you're climbing?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, North Carolina is, yeah, it's kind of a diverse state. You know, in the western part of the state, we have the largest mountains in the east. You know, the highest peak, uh, highest point in the east coast is, or east of the Mississippi anyway, is Mount Mitchell. 6,684 feet or something. It's higher than Mount Washington. You know, of course um, you know, so we have a lot, we have more 6,000 foot peaks in North Carolina than, you know, other States in the East. And, um, and a lot of public land, national forest, Pisgah national forest, Nantahill national forest, and a smoky mountain national park is right here. And that's right out my back door here. And, um, so, you know, the, um, the amount of public land and mountainous land we have in Western North Carolina is fantastic. Um, you know, I think it's, it's underrated in a little bit, uh, a way that there's, I think those in the know, no, <laughs> but, um, you know, like perhaps if you grew up in the Rockies or if you grew up in California or something, you know, you probably haven't heard as much about it. And, um, you know, there's fantastic adventures to be had right here. And, um, you know, we have, you know, remote wilderness and we have fantastic rock climbing and we have, you know, some of the best whitewater in the country, um, and there's really good cycling, uh, both road and mountain biking. And the thing about all of those things is that here in North Carolina is we do them, we can do all that year round. Um, the whitewater paddling, for instance, you can paddle good paddling all year. Um, whereas if you're following the, you know, like in the Rockies or you know California or somewhere that's you know, you know, there's like it's more like spring runoff kind of season. Um, we don't really have snow sports here. It does snow here, <laughs> and there are ski resorts in Western North Carolina. Um, however, I wouldn't uh, say that the snow sports are any good. Right. Uh, you know, occasionally, uh, you know, we'll get enough snow that I'll actually do some ski touring in the backcountry. You know, in North Carolina, which is it's kind of a joke, but uh, it, but you can do it. So I and it, it, so I guess where all that's taken me is that the the environment is really good for learning a variety of skills, um, and you have a consistency in being able to do those things on a, on a year round basis. So, um, you know, whereas, you know, rock climbing is in a seasonal activity, you know, you can, you can continue to do that and kind of year round. So, um, I think that was helped me to growing up here or spending at least the early part of my career, uh, in the outdoor world and, you know, just getting a lot of practice. Yeah,
1: Um, absolutely.
2: Um, and then we moved away and then, uh, for a bunch of years and lived in South America and in Montana and, and then moved, moved back actually, um, back this direction again.
1: So, but I think once you're used to being able to do stuff all year round, like no matter where you are, then you're, you don't go into hibernation in the winter, like some people do in the winter. I know growing up in New Jersey, I wasn't an active kid, so I'd play outside when it was nice, but like in the winter, you know, inside watching cartoons, that's it. Right. (laughs) But maybe if I'd grown up where it wasn't freezing out in the winter, I'd probably have kept playing outside and been more in the habit of that.
2: Yeah. And then, I mean, I certainly, you know, like when we lived in Montana and, you know, during the summer, we did obviously summer activities. And then when it turned winter, you know, we skied and ice climbed and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So. Tried to ride bikes sometimes when it wasn't as cold, but you know that kind of thing. So yeah, just sort of you know when in Rome, you know whatever that saying is, right? You know you do whatever's good. So um, yeah, so that worked out like that.
1: I love that. So you went to Outward Bound, which is super community oriented. Um, What brought you back to deciding you missed competition enough to get back into cycling?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I I did a bunch of years working for Hourbound and, and Knowles, and then also some private mountain guiding and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I kind of worked my way into a special niche with those kind of companies being a very um, instructing, very technical kind of courses. And so, like, you know, high altitude mountaineering and glacier travel and um, or like multi-day river trips and stuff like that. So that was sort of my talent, I guess, within those organizations was – um you know, specializing in being able to manage groups and, and instruct in like a highly technical kind of terrain. Um, I guess it's maybe that was kind of a tangent, but I guess the the, the, uh, the, uh, the lifestyle is, is fantastic for a while. Um, you know, I was spending 275 nights a year, maybe 300 nights a year in a sleeping bag. Um so you know that was going from 3 to 5 week course you know to have 5 days off go out on another 5 week course and uh you know the so when you're on course on like a mountaineering expedition in Alaska or in South America or something um you know you're out of touch like there's no you know the rest of the world around the bubble of the course you're in is non-existent for 5 weeks and right. Um, so, you know, you get, which is fantastic. You can get very absorbed into what you're doing. Um, and the, you know, the course that you're teaching and the people that you're with and all that sort of thing. Um, however, it's, it's also, uh, means that it's really difficult to have, you know, a girlfriend or keep in touch with your family or, um, have any sense of community of friends or sense of place. Um, it's very transient and seasonal. So, you know, I was making the transition from working in South America in the winter and North America in the summer, and you would kind of go back and forth, and and um, you know from Alaska to Southern Patagonia, and and um, you know that was all amazing experiences. But you know, there was certainly a longing for a little bit different lifestyle. Um, you know, uh, I met my wife and married. And we got married. She's an, was an hour bound and knowles instructor, and you know for the first several years that we were married, we were both working courses, and we were literally spend less than three months a year together Um, and then the rest of the time we were you know out doing our own stuff you know and so um so I guess there was a little bit of a pull to want to to try to to um transition to uh, a more I guess home-based kind of lifestyle and um so um, and that, so then maybe that means like working administration and this, those kind of organizations, and that's what my wife eventually did. Is she's in works in uh, you know as a program administrator for the North Carolina Outdoor Bound School, and so um, so that's more of a home based office kind of job with some field duties. And then um, I went to grad school in Montana and and um, got a master's degree in recreation management, and then went to start working at a university here in North Carolina and uh, running you know the director of their outdoor programs. Um, so that was a very much like a real job kind of, you know, as real job as, yeah, for sure. Um, it turns out that, I mean, you know, so I did sort of 10 years working for the university and, um, uh, but anyway, that's another story. But back to the, the question was like, how to get back into cycling. Well, when I got into grad school, um, back into cycling again, got into grad school. And, um, you know, I went from, you know, that my daily existence as you know, my work existence had me outside doing stuff actively all the time to then being really busy in grad school. And I had a really complicated assistantship that it was really um, time consuming. And so, um, you know, I was like sitting at a desk all day, staring at a computer or, or have my nose in a book all day. And so I needed to move my body somehow every day to feel sane, and it turned out that cycling again was probably the most accessible to me um i'm not really a, much of a runner and um so you know i mean i did some running you know but but i had just had more fun on the bike so i wouldn't just started riding my bike again and then the it was actually the collegiate cycling team um there that kind of got me back into it i started riding with people and they'd be like dude you used to be a professional like you need to race with us yes. <laughs> you know and i'd be like oh, i don't know about that like you know racing i don't know whatever um but I started racing with the collegiate team again and um you know, and then kinda of got the bug again. I was sort of like, Oh man, this is cool and, and then as I just sort of transitioned into a more traditional work and home based kind of lifestyle, it was just that was just my way of moving, you know, exercising I guess. So Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I think there's there's sort of two types of people and there's the people who competition kind of fills this like, you know, piece that's missing and it makes them better athletes. And then there were people where competition just like scares the crap out of them and is just like of no interest and it's just stressful so it seems like you probably fall in the, the first category oh yeah
2: well you know and certainly my motivation for doing any of the well all of these activities in, in general you know um i'm certainly seeking i i, I find a, a lot of fulfillment out of adventure and exploration and um so not knowing like i have this this like just desire and to, to figure out like what's around the next corner you know if like when I look at a landscape photograph that some you know amazing person has taken of some amazing landscape, you know it's like, oh wow, that's beautiful. But what's around the side of that mountain? I love it. <laughs> you know, that. Like, what does it look like from over there? Um, and so that kind of exploration, and then also, um, you know, sort of a moving meditation, I guess. So, um, you know, uh, you know, which would be flow state, um, yeah. if, if you're into psychology, psychological aspect of it, um. Being in the zone, um, you know, I have a high motivation to experience that, and then that's sort of being an introvert kind of person. That that's important to me to to feel, um, yeah, sort of like to recharge my own batteries. Is you know, I need to I need to be sort of doing that kind of stuff to on my own to have that um, to feel to feel happy and balanced and all that sort of thing. Um, so racing just kind of forces, I think, for me, it forces me into and even more focused environment, it, it ups the challenge. And, and, you know, it's kind of the, the, um, you imagine back to psychology class, and you're talking about flow state, you know, that, uh, the, you know, the, the graph of like where flow state occurs is, you know, where, where challenge meets skill level. And so as you continually up your skill level, you need to continually up the challenge to be able to match those to had to achieve this flow state. And so, um, yeah. And, and I certainly uh, I joke and tell people that I've, I've developed racer disease in the way that I race way too much, um, into the detriment of actually training. <laughs> um, so it's, the craft of it is also, I'm really excited about, um, you know, the, you know, certainly you know, things that you can't get from chasing a Strava segment, you know, are the, the interplay with other people in the race and how that motivates you and how you interact with that. And, um, I might have been Bill Strickland from uh, is, he, is he from Bicycling, oh, Magazine? It nice it might have been Bicycling Magazine? He, he had, there was a quote I read in Bicycling Magazine that made a lot of sense to me. That was like he said that uh, um, you know better is better than faster, but faster is faster. So cyclists usually choose faster before they choose better. So <laughs> you think about that, like you know, training wise, that people you know, especially with all the advent of all the you know. Training plans and internet coaching and all that sort of thing, like and Strava and Zwift and like all that kind of stuff. It's really easy for people to follow some kind of plan and increase their FTP and get faster, um, but man, they don't know how to ride their bikes. Totally, <laughs> you know, and especially you put them in an event like a road race, and they're completely lost because you know they're you know they can put out whatever number of watts for twenty minutes, but you know, and how do you do that in in the craft of a race? And and so there, there's a, a certainly a, a craft of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I love it. it. Sounds like you you race more for the the sake of racing than for the sake of winning. Which oh, I
2: for sure, like yeah,
1: just so important for the enjoyment of racing and for you know a longer career.
2: You, yeah, well, and you know, so I so I coach now. I'm a uh, cycling coach with uh, well, I guess it's sort of a You know, multi sport coach with uh, Carmichael training systems. And um, one of the things that I that happened to me is not it as an athlete and that I really try to get my young athletes who are aspiring to be elite athletes um, to try to make a disconnect between um, their sense of self worth um, tied to results. Um, that certainly when I was 18 years old, you know, my, you know, entire sense of self, um, image was completely tied to to the result of the, of the event. Um, how good did I, what place did I get? Um, you know, that kind of saying that, you know, you're only as good as your, you know, how you placed in your last bike race, but luckily, you know, there's bike races every weekend. So. Um, you know, you get to, you get to play that out several times, but, you know, now as a more mature athlete, I guess, you know, um, my sense of self-worth and self-identity is not necessarily tied to the results. I like to do well and I strive to, to do well, but I also, um, you know, I'm not, it it doesn't make me think less of myself if I don't win a race and I guess would make it so, so it's the more of the process of, you know, I enjoy training. I enjoy the race itself. I enjoy the craft of it all. Um, so, that's more important to me. And I try to get, you know, the, you know, the young athletes to think about that a little bit and to, you know, to focus on that. And it ultimately makes them a more durable athlete if they can, if they're not living and dying by the sword, so to speak, you know?
1: Absolutely. Uh, And speaking of your coaching, let's sort of, you know, shift to that. So what kind of athlete is your absolute favorite to be coaching?
2: Yeah, you know the the bread and butter of what the the type of athlete that I would have with CTS are really like um, you know kind of middle aged professionals that are um, you know professional business people you know maybe they're doctors lawyers dentists kind of thing that that are training to do a century event, or maybe they're getting into racing of some sort, you know, whether it be road, mountain, or cyclocross, or whatever. Um, you know, that tends to be the bulk of the, of the type of athletes that we have, and those are really rewarding to work with um, in the way that they um, – it's, it's pretty easy for them to see uh, really um, quick improvements – um, so just with some really basic structure and some really basic um fundamentals, you know, they see a lot of improvement quickly. And that's really exciting for me to work with, obviously. It's like, oh look, you know, like,
0: yeah
2: <laughs> improving and, and you're excited about it, and I'm excited about it, and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I do have some some more elite athletes and um I do have uh some up and coming athletes that are sort of, you know um, you know, like, I guess, you know, some noteworthy type of folks that are, that I really like to work with. Um, like for instance, I have a, um, are are actually young females to tell you the truth, um, that I've seen over and over again, the, the impact of something like cycling that has on a, on a female, a young female, that's sort of like finding her strength or finding her self-confidence in the world and to sort of like, develop that power i guess through cycling um is really pretty cool to see and and um you know the the some of the the young females that i work with that are in that mode of really discovering themselves and figuring out you know what kind of who they're going to be in life um you know it's kind of being shaped by their dedication to cycling right now and um you know it's it's really interesting how the the values and and instincts and i guess um I guess methodology that they apply to their cycling kind of bleeds over into the rest of their life and and how that um you know, the benefits that they achieve on the on the bicycle, um, you know, putting the total package together as a person to be able to be a good athlete, you know, bleeds over into the rest of their life and they, you know, are you know, incredibly confident and fantastic people and, you know, good community members and all that sort of thing, you know, off the bike as well. And, um, and I think that's, you know, especially for young females is, uh, is something that's maybe a little bit more difficult than males, but, um, but it's, it's pretty neat to see. So, um, I really enjoy that.
1: I love that. No, I, whenever I think about what would have happened if I hadn't joined my collegiate cycling team, like just world of difference, I'd still you know, be like a little punk kid with probably more tattoos than I have now and, yeah. you know, probably drinking a lot more than I should and, you know, God knows what else I'd be doing. So, you know, I'm so thankful that I, I fell in with the the right crowd, I guess. Yeah. To be a bunch of little punk collegiate cyclists. So, Yeah,
2: for sure. And, that, you know, you think of like the, the power of that in your life and how that shaped who you are and, um, yeah. You know, and, you know, I'm certainly thankful for, you know, for cycling's role in my life of, you know, cycling was really the thing in my life that was my thing to to discover and, and develop who I am. And so it's part of my identity for sure. And so. Um, you know, cycling, you know, for all the athletes that I coach, you know, cycling is a part of all the cycling athletes I coach anyway, you know, certainly cycling is some part of their life, you know, and maybe not to that extent, you know, it's maybe not as center focus as, as, you know, their identity, but it, you know, it's something that they, they like. Um, so, you know, I also I coach other athletes as well that are kind of more adventure athletes, I guess, yeah. or folks that maybe they I've signed up for um, they maybe they're going to do a mountaineering expedition to Denali or to Everest or something. And they know that, you know, and they're a busy person and they're trying to figure out, like, how do I get ready to do this incredibly difficult thing? And what do I need to do? You know, how do I train for it or, you know, fit that in around my busy lifestyle? Um, I help people with that um, as well. Yeah,
1: which I really actually. Yeah, that was one of the things I really loved about, you know, the stuff you were saying. And I mean. I feel like designing those schedules must just be the most challenging and cool thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't even imagine. Um, But then, so my, my one question was just like, so if someone that's, you know, maybe not like super out of shape, but like, they're not really in great shape came to you and just said like, Hey, like I, you know, I don't really have a definite goal, but I really want to get into like adventuring outside. Like my buddies are planning this big, like, you know, weekend of hiking and, can't, you know, kayaking mm-hmm. and climbing and stuff like that, what are some of the first things you do to try to get them like almost ready to get specific with a sport like that?
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. And I think it really starts with, uh, really being introspective and investigating the goals and, um, you know, in coaching in general, that's kind of the first step, right? So, um, you know, with sport, and uh, competition, that's maybe more clear cut and you're know, like, okay, I'm going to try to get to the cyclocross national championships right. and in good a shape as I could be um but you know or maybe there's a, a trip you know that you're trying to work up to like a an expedition or you know a climbing trip or yeah you know, or like um you know I'm going mountain biking with the buddies in Fruta for a week and you know I want I've, that's coming up in 6 months and you know and I'm these guys always kick my butt and I want to get better to be able to ride with them and, you know and enjoy it more um. So, you know, there's, so I guess there's different levels of goals, is what I'm trying to say. So, really investigating that is really the first step. Um, and then you know, the second step really is is trying to figure out what uh what kind of training availability do they have. When I say training, you know, I'm using that as a general term for you know, like for activity in general working towards these goals um, you know I, I consider all the people I work with athletes and, um, and you know they all have an athlete within them and I uh, yeah, consider it all kind of training so we'll just use that as a generic term but you know considering what kind of consider what kind of training availability do they have and then what access do they have for um, means to accomplish those things so um, you know do they have you know, can they go hiking or can they go running or do they, can they ride bikes or do they, do they live in the city? And, you know, like just how do you accomplish all those things? And then so taking the, that and then matching it with general, I guess, coaching physiology and um, knowledge of how to, um, understand what the goals are and what um, physiological demands are going to be necessary to, for, to have that goal. And then how do you develop a person from point A to point B to increase their ability levels in those, in those um, energy systems and all that sort of thing. So, and yeah. sort of connect A to B and to C.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, one of the, th- there's a couple of things that we always talk, we've been talking about a lot. Like, first of all, it's just like, um, building no matter kind of what kind of athlete or what kind of adventure you're going on having like some kind of aerobic base before you get into mm-hmm. like super specifics because all the uh, i feel like all the rock climbing technique in the world or all like the ability to mountain bike and like bunny hop stuff means nothing if you can't actually like ride or run for like a few minutes
2: yeah exactly and you think yeah so the um so yeah it's not always like uh, the
1: sexy techniques first it's the uh
2: Right. Yeah. So building a foundation of fitness in a lot of different ways is is um is the is really the first step. Right. And so, um, yeah, cardiovascular capacity and, um, you know, and whether so that means, you know, running and or riding bikes or, you know, walking up steps or, you know, some kind of thing that elevates heart rate for long periods of time, Um to be able to start to build that, that cardiovascular capacity is a, is, def- is often a first step. And even for athletes like that are trying to, um, you know, like maybe a specific rock climbing project is their, is their goal. You know, like I, I want to climb five thirteen in sport climbing, you know, that's a very super specific and short duration kind of thing, but they need a, a foundation of, of fitness and ability to be able to, reach that pinnacle that reach that pointy end of the, of the pyramid. Um, so that's, that's important for them to, you know, to do that kind of, um, that kind of work as well. And and maybe, you know, maybe for climbing, you know, you can be as specific as, you know, you're going to be doing sets of easy bouldering, you know, like traversing on a bouldering wall or something, you know, you do like five and 10 minute sets of just kind of monkeying around, but it, you know, it, it elevates your heart rate enough that you have that same kind of physiological response to the exercise and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but what's really cool about it is like a multi-sport athlete is that once you achieve a a high level or achieve some level of cardiovascular capacity or this kind of foundation, then, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um, um, almost like a Swiss army knife at that point that it's really easy to just like whip out a, you know, a certain tool for a specific application, um, you know, that you have all of that already built into the, to the, to your body, um, and that you can, um, absorb all these different, um, I guess, you know, activities much more easily. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's kind of how I how I think about it.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And actually, so one of the other things I was going to say, and it kind of goes to the Swiss army knife. So like you've got like the cardio is like the actual like knife, the one that you use the most. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I would say like from with the people we've been talking to and the activities we've been thinking about. One of like, I'd say like maybe the little saw tool or like the screwdriver, one of the kind of important ones is actually grip strength. And I feel mm-hmm. like that comes up for so many of the different things we've been
2: talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, it's going back to understanding the physiological demands for your goals. You know, if if grip strength is is a critical element of, you know, of the goal activity that you have, then that's then that's something that, um, you know, that obviously you need to work on. Um you know, so for, for instance, like, you know, for me at the at the moment, I'm I'm pretty excited about I kind of go through phases, right, where I'll, I'll be like really excited or in my life. anyway, i have gone through phases where I've been more excited about rock climbing for a period of years or for, you know, whitewater paddling for a period of years or, you know, ice climbing or whatever. And, and then, you know, right now I'm kind of in a, in a cycling phase again. And, and so I'm making some sacrifices to the other ability to do other activities right. in order to be better at cycling right now. Um, so, you know, I'm, I really, you know, I'm looking a lot more like a skinny bicycle racer these days, um, and a lot less like a, uh, rock climber. (laughs) Um, so, you know, yeah, my ability to climb hard rock is not that great right now. Um, but you know, I can still, since my, I can pull it off in short durations in the way that, um. You know, I, since my cardiovascular capacity in general is is so much higher that, you know, by the time I arrive at the crux of a multi-pitch climbing route or something, I've expended less energy or maybe the same amount of energy, but it's I've, – I've burned less matches, I guess. Yeah. Um, than, and so then I have more in reserve, I guess, to be able to tackle this tough section. Yeah. Um So I can occasionally get away with that. But, you know, mostly you know, like these days, it's really easy for me to focus on um, kind of lower body um, – uh centric sort of activities you know so things like you know like most alpine climbing and mountaineering you know it's mostly leg driven you know it's, it's lower angle stuff you know with occasional you know vertical or overhanging thing but you know most of the time you know you're it's it's an endurance athlete sport it's moving your body across terrain for long periods of time and with a lot of elevation gain and um, you know, so alpine climbing, ski mountaineering, you know, backcountry skiing, you know, all that kind of stuff is really um, is really a, an endurance athlete kind of sport, um, yeah. with you know very um, specific injections of of uh, you know skill to for certain sections, but um, taken as a whole, it's it's definitely a a longer event.
1: Yeah. It's funny, that actually ties really well into the question I was going to ask about which skills overlap in, you know, all of those activities. And yeah, it seems like an endurance kind of thing weaves its way through. Uh But it's also interesting just, I mean, what you were saying with like, if you're going to be at the pointy end of like being that, you know, really competitive cyclist, like it's going to come at the cost of like lowering your abilities in, you know, some of the other sports. So yeah. you can either be really good at one thing and like okay at other stuff, or you can be like kind of decent at everything, like across
2: the board. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I I believe even for the pointy end people that there's there's a certain amount of of just um, functionality that they need to have across the board to to just have that a foundation to be able to to make that pointy end work and absolutely. Um, so you know, even you know, and we see, you know, I see it myself. Even that, um, you know, like right now, I'm, I've got something weird going on with my shoulder. That it's some kind of muscle imbalance or something that's causing my shoulder not to track correctly, and so it's all sore. And you know, and it's and it's because I'm I'm neglecting some of that. Um, you know, like I'm I'm just riding my bike, Right. <laughs> you know? And occasionally doing some other stuff, and so, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to a well-balanced um, situation in, in some things. And so then I'm, you know, I'm old enough now that it's starting to cause problems. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's a certain amount of, like, you know, when I'm working with athletes in general of, you know, just creating full body functional strength and ability and balance to be able f- for them to be able to, you know, participate in their activity without experiencing injury or um, to be able to handle – um, you know, just kind of a, a variety of, of, um, you know, I guess to make them more durable really yeah. is what we're trying to make it. Well,
1: and heck basic real life. Like I've seen cyclists oh, yeah. run in from like, you know, a car into a store <laughs> from the rain and they get in and they're like bent over and they're like, my knees, oh my God, my yeah, knees yeah. are killing me. And then they can't carry the bags out because the bags are too heavy. And yep. It just shocks me when I'm like, oh my God, these are like some of, you know, the most elite level people and, they have these functional issues that, you know, in five years are going to be really big problems. So. Right.
2: And, and maybe if, you know, I mean, if your job is to be a professional cyclist, sure. let's say, then maybe, you know, that you can more intentionally make those decisions to, to sacrifice, you know, my ability to carry a box across the room. Um, you know, you can hire somebody to do, I don't know, but, you know, but, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know for most of us that are not that that's you know our, our uh, i guess our paycheck is not necessarily tied to our outcomes of the of races and that sort of thing then yeah. um man, we might as well be you know more functional and total body functional and you Absolutely. know have, um yeah. so that you know when we want to move a box into the from the car to the garage that we don't like throw out our neck and then can't ride your bike for two weeks so
1: Absolutely. And I mean, to that end, for yourself and for, you know, the athletes that you coach, do you ever add in stuff like yoga, meditation, strength training, anything outside of like what sport that they're focused on or you're focused on?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, that's definitely a, a component, I think, of a well-rounded training schedule. And, and there's, you know, a lot of that depends on the availability of, of training for the specific athlete. Um, you know, certainly if uh, you have unlimited time, you know, you can do all kinds of stuff, you know, and, and be able to both do it, but then also recover from it um, and see benefit from it. But, um, you know, for some folks, you know, on the most basic level, you um, you know, just developing a consistent schedule where they're actually riding their bike consistently week to week is, is a, is a challenge. So, you know, in that kind of way, then, um, you know, once we kind of establish that, then let's, you know, let's maybe throw in a 15 minute core exercise routine while you're watching TV, you know, three times a week or something. Um, but yeah, I think all of those things are, uh, um, you know, are good components to add in when you can and, um, and be very you know, more specific, um, but yeah certainly you know i I definitely will specifically uh, prescribe you know strength training stuff specific strength training stuff for most of the athletes you know depending on what availability to you know what they have for training tools and but most of the stuff is just like stuff they can do at home like in front of the television and Hold with on. an exercise ball and a, and a yoga mat
1: so know i find with travel and stuff like i pretty much have had to figure out like okay 20 minutes of like a sitcom or something in front of the tv with just body weight and like figured out how that
2: can work for me yeah for sure and yeah make your little travel kit of you know of a few different items that help you out with that like you know i mean i I travel a lot with my exercise ball you know like deflate it and roll it up and it's you know just kind of um so um, that kind of stuff um works out pretty well
1: I think most people have at least like, I mean, I spend five minutes doing yoga every morning. (laughs) It's not that hard. And that adds up to almost, you know, like 45 minutes a week. Yep. Pretty decent. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Awesome. All right. So my, my last question, and uh, like I said, in my questions, I admit to Facebook stalking you to figure out that your, your wife (laughs) is also an outdoorsy type. Um, Mm -hmm. And I only asked this because, you know, Peter and I started this podcast together partially to answer this question for ourselves of, How the heck you, because I mean, obviously you want an active partner and it's great to have one that shares, you know, the same loves, you know, of the outdoors and all the same activities that you do, but there's some inherent differences between ability levels and, you know, time constraints and all that stuff. How do you guys balance both being really active?
2: And, uh, oh, I see. So, yeah, um, we found it pretty easy, I think, um, that we... Uh, yeah, I I think it helps that we are both uh, have similar interests and similar, um, passions. Um, so, you know, we're able to share those things together quite often. Um, you know, we ride together a good bit and, um, we, you know, train together when we can and, um, you know, it's like we go to bike races together and we both race. And and so it's like date weekend, every weekend to go to uh-huh. bike races, like load up the van and the dogs and we're headed out to wherever to go, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so that's, that's pretty easy. It comes pretty naturally. I think it would be more difficult if, um, you know, if one of us was not, um, as into, you know, the same thing as the other one. So, you know, like, let's say if I were, I don't know if I was more into horses or something, then, you know, then obviously there'd have to be some, some compromising, more compromising give and take. Um, but, uh, so that has been pretty easy for us. I think we've, we've lived a fairly non-traditional, um, couple lifestyle. Like I mentioned, like spending so much time apart in the early part of our marriage and and we've been married for almost 15 years now. Um, and you know, we've been able to make it work quite well with that, um, but it's yeah I, I don't I don't know if that helps it's 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 just sort of come natural to us I don't know if I have a whole lot of yeah, like that's, that's breakthrough great. tips you know um,
1: yeah it's awesome that you guys are able to go to race weekends and do races at the same time um, all right so my my absolute last question um you know thinking back to when you were a junior and you were just focused on cycling to you know where you are now where you know you've done other things you have you know these skill sets built up and other stuff you know, would you say you were, you know, healthier and a better athlete when you were just a cyclist or, and I feel like I just like made this the most leading question ever, or now that you can do all of these sports, but you might not be, you know, quite as competitive at the lawn.
2: Yeah. Um. Oh, sorry. I just dropped something. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I obviously will feel, probably feel more, um, you know, more healthy overall, you know, doing all these things than I then as just a just a cyclist. Um, you know, I think that it's a it's a conscious decision, I think, to like we were saying earlier about pursuing one thing over other one sport over other things that, um, you know, that may lead you down a, a road that is an intentional road, but is um, not necessarily as um wholesome to you as a person or healthy as a person. So, you know, like I, for instance, I feel like being a, a real professional cyclist is detrimental to your health. Like you're achieving a balance of performance over, you know, an overall, I mean, certainly being healthy is a, is a strong part. Healthy as in not sick is a, right. is critical for you to be an, a professional athlete. But as far as like, um, you know, a wholesome person that's going to be durable for the rest of their life. <laughs> um, you know that that you're making decisions that are that are based more in the short term than on the long term uh, type of thing. So, so that that is definitely a conscious decision. Um, you know, but I I'd, I'd say just since all these different a lot of these different sports, there's a lot of overlap in just ability um, and a lot of overlap in skill sets. Um, I feel like. Um, you know, being a well-rounded athlete in different ways um, is, yeah, it just helps with being more wholesome in general, a more a more complete, yeah, person and athlete. So,
1: absolutely. We'll um, put all of your contact info in the show notes, but I think uh, I think that's all we've got. So, thank you so much for for chatting today. It was awesome getting to know you.
2: Yeah, no, I enjoyed it, um, for sure. Yeah, you know, thanks for the opportunity and.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode six with Josh Whitmore. We thought Josh was a perfect interview for episode six. He brings a lot of the themes from the past episodes, our first five that you have to check out. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, get over to our new website at consummateathlete.com. Remember two M's in, con- or, <laughs> two M's in consummate. Um, We'll have all the show notes there. You can link to Josh's Twitter there and his websites. Um, find out about his coaching and his adventures uh, on Twitter. He is I am Josh Whitmore. That's I A M J O S H W H I T M O R E. And again, you can find that on consummateathlete.com, and we'll just link you right through. So get over to consummateathlete. Follow us there. Um, let us know what you think of the website any feedback on the podcast is welcome and as we get going here those likes and comments and feedback on iTunes uh, will help us keep going here Um, so get out there try something new this week Um, feel free to tweet at Molly or I and let us know what you're up to